Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. This week on Bespoke Cast, our guest is Katie Stockton, Chief Technical Strategist for BTIG in New York City. During our conversation, we discuss a range of topics, including the basic approach Katie takes to the discipline of technical analysis, the current market environment, and balancing the demands of a career in finance with a fulfilling personal life. We hope you find the conversation insightful and can't wait to share Katie's insights with you. Today, we're joined by Katie Stockton of BTIG. Uh, Katie is a technical analyst and has a long career in the markets, uh, starting out west in San Francisco before moving to her current role in New York City. Uh, She's got a wealth of experience across a variety of different asset classes as far as technicals go, and we're very lucky to have her here today on BespokeCast to talk about technicals and how she views the markets. So thanks very much for joining us, Katie. We really appreciate it. Thank you, George. I'm happy to be with you all. So I think it would be helpful to start with a little bit of background about who you are and and, uh, how you got into the financial markets and and how you approach your career. So um, you went to undergrad at the University of Richmond, is that correct? I did, and and that was actually very fortunate for me. I I was a finance major, and I didn't know at the time exactly what I would do with that major, but we were um, one of the few universities in the United States that actually had course offerings in technical analysis. So I think it was one of 12 universities at the time that actually offered technical analysis as a 400 level course. And uh, so I was able to to take that course as an undergrad. I audited it. It was a graduate level course. And uh, so benefited from that for sure. And that really helped set me on the path to where I am today as a a technical strategist for BTIG in, in Manhattan. Oh, so that's fascinating. I've never heard of uh, technicals being taught to undergraduates in an academic setting. Um, not that it, they shouldn't be, of course, but um, certainly untraditional. So um, that was a graduate level course for for finance uh, graduate students. Is that? That's right. And, and I'm happy to say now it's actually offered on the undergraduate level. So in fact, I go back once a year and, and do a guest lecture for the class. And, and usually it has about 30 students and and the coursework has expanded to other universities. Uh, the Market Technicians Association, or MTA, has an educational foundation, and part of their mandate is to get this curriculum teaching technical analysis in universities around the country. Really interesting. So I think we'll talk about the MTA and sort of technicals as a as a discipline, I guess, in a little bit. But that is fascinating that you were able to be exposed to that in undergrad, because I remember my undergraduate education, which was um, a combination of sort of more practical applied courses, but also the traditional econ stuff. And the idea of one of my economics professors uh, teaching technicals is is almost kind of funny to to think about. You know, it just would have been viewed very derisively. So that's that's awesome, really. I'm kind of jealous that you got exposed to it formally so early. And, and I mean, it, it was in a way viewed that, that way. Uh, they actually brought in sort of a, um, a proctor to teach the course, and my advisor, who was very much more oriented toward fundamental analysis. Um, he encouraged me to apply for the Student Managed Investment Fund 
at University of Richmond. And, and as a technical analyst, I was not accepted. So now we always have a good laugh when I go back on campus and say, oh, you guys would have done so, so much better with an element of trend following. Um, but now it's, it's become an ongoing joke for us. But, but certainly it's, um, it's great that they're sort of spearheading that effort. And um, for me also, I, I had an internship with Payne Weber while I was in college. And I remember sitting with one of the brokers and he had on his desk some research and it had X's and O's all over it. And I said, gosh, what, what are those X's and O's? That's interesting. Had never seen anything like it. And of course, it turned out to be a point and figure chart. And uh, he told me all about it. And it happened to be a local firm in Richmond, Virginia called Dorsey Wright and Associates who published this research. And I then reached out to them and picked up an internship with them and stayed on with them for about two years. So I was uh, really almost had no choice at that point <laughs> but to go into technical analysis. It was like it was, it was just meant to be. And ultimately graduated, um, had already received the level one of, of the chartered market technician designation uh, with the final exam from that coursework at University of Richmond. So I was really on that path from day one graduating from college. You did two years at a local firm then, and then after that, you ended up out in San Francisco. Is that correct? I did. So Dorsey Wright was kind enough to help place me with one of their clients. And I worked with, uh, if you remember Frank Capiello from Wall Street Week, it was his firm based in San Francisco, a, a money manager. And uh, I did point and figure charting for them for a couple of years before moving on to the sell side, where I became registered for DLJ and uh, learned, you know, different sides of the business, but still always applying technicals in some capacity. The work out there when you first moved out and were working on point and figure charts, that was in the late 1990s, correct? That's right. It was a good time <laughs> to be following following trends, right? And uh, it felt like, you know, it was, it was much more difficult to be wrong then than it is now <laughs> because the momentum tools really worked very well in that environment where it was just up, 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 especially when I was surrounded by the technology sector and, and people that were interested in it. As far as your day-to-day -day itself, did you, um, were all your charts on screens by that point or were you still doing a lot of work on paper? I mean, I'm relatively young for um, for the work I do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I turned 27 today actually. So back then I, I wouldn't have, you know, been following markets at all. Did, did you guys have you know, like today, it's easy to pull up a point and figure chart on stock charts. Did you have to write out charts or print out charts? Or was it all already on screens by the late 1990s? It was not on screen. So that's in part why they hired me. They um, had me doing, you know, hand charting for these point and figure charts where I'm writing out the X's and O's. And um, at the time, I, I don't believe I even had email. <laughs> so so it's come a long way and uh, the resources that we have now and the charting functionality is really just um, awesome. I mean, it, there's so much more capacity uh, with what we have you know, at our fingertips these days. Yeah, it seems like almost it's harder to decide what not to look at than it is to decide what to look at. So I'm thinking of charts. We'll, I spend a lot of time on Twitter and some of the charts you'll see on Twitter that, you know, people quite rightly, I think, make a bit of fun of is you'll just see this spaghetti sauce of different indicators all in one chart and it becomes completely un unreadable 
any one of those indicators might be extremely useful, you know, maybe, maybe not. But when you combine them all, it's just so impossible to get anything out of it. So it's almost like now we live in an era where, you know, the uh, Nate Silver signal and the noise um, is, is the real challenge as opposed to, you know, as recently as 20 years ago, generating any data at all was a lot harder to do. I would say more is more. <laughs> In a way, because I, I might be one of those people that make the spaghetti charts. It's funny because one of my mentors, Rick Benson, your, when I worked at Morgan Stanley in their technical strategy group, I remember looking over his shoulder and saying, oh, my goodness, how, you know, how do you make anything out of that? And these days, my charts are looking a whole lot like his, um, just having learned some of the indicators that, that he used and, and uh, really applied them. And, and it is all about how you combine the indicators. It's not any one individual indicator that will give you uh, the best answer all the time. Of course, if we knew that, that would be um, you know a little bit easier than it is. But, but really, it's in how you weight the different indicators in different environments. So that's the goal. I think you know in order to program that, you'd have to be sort of a quantitative uh, wizard, which I am not. But um, it is so visual at the end of the day. And, and the charts and the indicators that I use I find them to be uh, more helpful than not and try to refine, you know, um, I guess how to use them in, in different environments. So I think that's a nice segue into sort of talking about what technical analysis is in general. And I think it would be great. You're the first technician we've had on. Um, Bespoke uses uh, technicals in a number of different contexts for our work. But it would be great to hear someone like you with the CMT designation and who spends you know, your whole day looking at technicals sort of talk about the philosophy of technical analysis. What What is technical analysis and why do people conduct it? Because I think there are some misconceptions around that and you know, maybe a lack of understanding of what technicals actually are, um, as opposed to uh, the sort of popular perception among folks that spend more time digging through balance sheets and income statements to um, generate investment ideas. That's right. Well, I, I don't think anybody would argue against the fact that there are trends in the marketplace, and, and that goes for just about any security. So our goal as technicians is to try to understand what the prevailing trend is over any given time uh, horizon, short term, intermediate term, long term, et cetera and to understand when that trend is coming to an end, because that's where we can really add the most value. It's not in to say, oh, well, you know, that, that security is going up. That might be obvious. You know, all you need to do is throw on a 50-day moving average or something like that, but rather to say, you know what, this is getting overextended to the point where it's, it's on the verge of a down move or reversal, and, and that's where we can add the most value. So it's identification of trends and, and when they're, um, you know, reversing. I think that's really the, the goal of technical analysis. Uh, but, you know, not to oversimplify, of course, there, there's much more to it. And, um, I, you know, it, it's gauging supply and demand for the security. Um, I tend to be somewhat U.S. equity centric, so um, we'll gear the conversation to U.S. stocks. Um, when I talk to somebody who really is not familiar with technical analysis and how to use it, I, I explain that we're not actually looking at the company, but rather the stock. And, and there is a difference. And that difference, I think, is largely there because of the top-down influences from the market. And by that, I mean the sector influence or the influence of just the broader market indices and their trends. So that trickles down into the movement in any given stock. And I think that can be very frustrating if you're, you're simply looking at um, the fundamentals of a company and it just is totally out of line with the way the stock is acting. And, and that's where we can really add some value using the charts by saying, 
okay, this might be out of line temporarily. Let's try and understand how far out of line it may get based on levels that we've identified on the chart that seem to have some importance. And uh, by levels, I mean support and resistance. And that's a huge concept for me is uh, support being an area of potential buying pressure and resistance being an area of potential selling pressure. So if we can become adept in identifying uh, these levels, that that's really um, where the value is in the charts. And that's where you get that risk management element from them. So I think when you explain it that way, people, it resonates with them a bit more to say that, um, you know, we're, we're really trying to fill in the blanks when other things don't make a whole lot of sense. And, and quite frankly, now the tape is so macro driven that that top down influence is even greater in some cases. So, um, you know, all the more need for for charts and, and strategy research. If you could sort of uh, sketch out like your your TA toolkit for dummies, like um, the, for someone that's never looked at a chart before, what are the sort of the first three things you're going to look at? And obviously, as you had said earlier, there are there are a plethora of indicators that you know you can go forever as far as which one is going to be the one that is going to work in a given situation. But it, in any um, given chart, cert, I'm sure there are sort of three simple kind of things that you're looking at first. And maybe that won't give you a definitive read, but it'll sort of outline how you're looking at things. So do you have those, you know, something simple like that when you're first looking at a chart every time that you go to, or or is it really just depends entirely on the chart? Oh, I, I definitely have a methodology. And um, like you said, I mean, it does change with the environment at times. But I would say when I look at an individual chart, whether it's of an index, an ETF, the futures, et cetera, um, I'm, I'm primarily looking at um, a few things. One would be trend falling gauges. A, a great trend falling gauge I find to be the MACD indicator for short. It stands for the Moving Average Convergence Divergence Indicator. Sounds fancy, but really it's just a collection of moving averages and their spreads. And it's, it's designed to eliminate some noise and really refine the prevailing trends, which, as you know, is one of the goals of, of technical analysis. So the MACD indicator is a great trend following tool. I do have another one uh, that's a Japanese model. We, we refer to it as the cloud model. Um, it's not that much more uh, complex than the MACD indicator, but it has this really neat visual quality to it. So I, I like to have that on my charts as well. So those would be in that, that trend following camp. In the more overbought of resold camp, which again is going to get us closer to identifying the reversal points in trends, I use typically something called the stochastic oscillator. And that's trying to understand if something's getting oversaturated, I guess, with buying or selling pressure. And I also use the DeMarc indicators. Those are indicators that were designed by Tom DeMarc, who's very well known in my world and beyond. And, and he's designed some indicators that really have some value in helping us identify inflection points in the marketplace. And then finally, uh, I do also employ some relative strength analysis. So, so in addition to those trend following indicators and overbought oversold measures, I do tend to have an overlay for relative strength. And, and for that, I also have two primary tools, one just being a ratio, so a price to price ratio, uh, one security to another. So for example, in my recent report that I published to clients, I, I featured a ratio that was uh, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index divided by the S&P 500 index. And that gave you a sense of whether semiconductor stocks were outperforming, underperforming, et cetera. 
So I use that quite a bit. And then also the relative rotation graphs, which are a relatively new tool, at least new to me, uh, designed by Julius de Kempner out of Holland. And, and he's created this great way to uh, visualize data on a relative basis. Those relative rotation graphs, I'm familiar with those, but um, I, I think basically they're measuring um, both the uh, uh, sort of first derivative of change relative to an index and then the second derivative of it all, as well. So, you know, is a stock outperforming and then is it uh, is its outperformance growing or declining? And then is it underperforming? Is the underperformance growing or declining? Is, is that a fair way of describing those? That's Yeah, that's a great way of explaining it. I, I like to also highlight that it's a normalized view. So it's a great way to, for example, look at sectors relative to the broader market where Normally, you'd look at one index versus the S&P 500 or the likes, and, and this allows you to look at several all at once, not only relative to the S&P 500, but relative to each other. So that normalized factor uh, really gives it that great visual quality. Very interesting. So just to recap, you're looking at trend, you're looking at position sort of within the trend in terms of overbought and oversold, and then you're looking at um, trend or position within the trend relative to the market as a whole. Would that be a fair way of rounding that out? Yeah, So the, and those are the indicators. The way I look at the markets um, would be a bit broader than that. I, I do start typically with support and resistance, and um, there's a lot of ways we can identify support and resistance on the charts, and it can range from looking at previous peaks and troughs where something has stalled before, uh, or looking at a moving average that tends to be very widely followed, like the 200-day moving average, for example, um, or looking at Fibonacci retracement levels. So this is where the art in technical analysis really comes into play is in identifying these support and resistance levels. Then I consult the indicators, and then I consult something that I call market internal measures. And, you know, I, I leave them for the end because they really are sort of tertiary for me in my, in my methodology, uh, but they can tell a, ni a nice story about the market. So technicals really are, are fairly black and white at times, you know, it's, it's up or down, <laughs> um, but this gives some nice market color where, where you know what the advancers and decliners are, are looking like, how many stocks are making new highs and new lows, and what is sentiment saying, you know, where is the leadership coming from? How is market breadth or participation? And uh, how does volume look? All of these things would come into play as sort of a giving color to what you're seeing otherwise in terms of the support and resistance and also the indicators. So one thing I've noticed that you've left off that list um, somewhat conspicuously is uh, patterns. So for instance, um, a head and shoulders is like the classic technical pattern. And for a, a listener that maybe isn't familiar with this, what you would see is is in a rising trend, you see a, a high made and then a small decline and then a new high made, another uh, decline back towards the previous decline, a small gain back towards the first high that we described and then a big drop after that um that that's like one of the classic ta patterns that you see people try and find in every chart um do you do you not spend as much time thinking about patterns or are they not as important to your methodology or how, how does that work um you know most patterns tend to be derived from support and resistance so while I don't tend to give a lot of labels to what I see, I mean, certainly there are head and shoulders out there from time to time and flag patterns and triangle formations. Those things are all, they all have their basis in support and resistance. So to me, I, 
I'm seeing those things. I'm not often highlighting them, but rather to say, okay, well, well, you know, XYZ has broken out above a, a resistance level, and that is confirming a reversal pattern, that type of thing. Um, so it does come into play in a way, but uh, without really labeling it. Um, some of the names do get a little bit silly. <laughs> Head and shoulders is one of them. Um, and I, I tend to find that but for folks that I, I talk to that are somewhat skeptical in terms of, of you know, how to employ technicals, that, that it doesn't really resonate with them when you start throwing out um, some of the names that have been sort of a, a assigned to these patterns. Yeah, I think there's, it's one of the sort of things you have to get over um, as someone that looks at technicals and hasn't before is that there's often this sort of mystical error of authority that folks, some folks that use technicals assign to certain things. Like this is how things always work. You know, this is how, what will happen next. There's a, there's a high degree of certainty in a lot of technical analysts' commentary, um, present company not necessarily included, of course. But, um, you know, on these sort of very counterintuitive or seemingly nonsensical sort of things like something called a head and shoulders. And, you know, as someone that looks at markets a lot, I mean, I, I do see a lot of head and shoulders and they do play out. So I, I sort of understand that. But for somebody that's that's new, this sort of mysticism can kind of seem like, well, hold on a second. What it, how, how does this guy know so well? Or how does this girl know so well what's going to happen next um, based on this funny little chart pattern or whatever ultra obscure indicator without that sort of background explanation of, you know, you're trying to identify supply and demand imbalances, you're trying to identify changes in trend, that can seem to sort of um, make technicals hard for people to get their heads around, it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And, and um, I think the conviction level tends to come from a place that, that the, ch the charts and the indicators tend to be designed to eliminate some gray area in the market. And um, there's a beauty to that where we have either a Mac the buy signal or a sell signal, it's, it's, there's no in-between there. And um, I think people value the indicators for that reason. And they also derive a level of, of certainty from that. So uh, they'll see a setup that they've seen in the past, and that gives them the confidence that, that indeed it should repeat itself. And of course, it doesn't always, <laughs> but, but it can give you some confidence in, in taking a trade. Um, and then it also can eliminate some of the emotions um, that are involved with taking that trade where you can have a, a more well-defined stop loss, for, for example, by just identifying support and saying, hey, listen, if it dips below that level, I'm uncomfortable with that, regardless of what the company is saying or doing. So um, I think that that's a welcome um, sort of feature of the charts, but often to a fault. <laughs> We're all guilty of it. Yeah, I, I definitely have noticed that it's much easier to set a quantitative this is where I'm getting out level when you're sort of looking at the price action graphically as opposed to setting a particular PE or a particular um, you know uh, a price relative to EBITDA whatever you want to do from a fundamental perspective um, picking where that stop loss is in that context can be a lot harder than just sort of looking at a chart and saying you know okay here something would have really changed you can sort of look at the price action very intuitively and say you know this is this is what um, I'm not going to be comfortable with so uh, that certainty definitely does or you know the illusion thereof depending on what kind of analysis you're doing 
certainly can be super helpful. And that's definitely a way we use technicals too at Bespoke is to sort of think about uh, where are we going to set our risk as opposed to, you know, this is what's going to happen. Um, so that's that's an interesting observation, I would say for sure. Um, with regards to TA, there, there are limits though, surely. So have you ever seen an instance of someone using technical analysis in a way that it was never really designed to be used or that's that's like a totally off the script uh, approach to a data series or something maybe not related to stock prices? Well, there, there's drawbacks to any discipline, of course. And, and uh, one of the prevailing ones I would say that I run into is, you know, headline risk. So any, any market, any security that's more prone to headline risk will be less, um, I guess, uh, it's less applicable to what I do. And um, probably the best case in point would be, say, small or mid-cap biotech stocks, where they have so many binary events. And um, quite frankly, that's where support and resistance levels just won't matter when you get these massive gaps on the chart. And also the other uh, point would be where there's a lack of liquidity, and then you get those gaps just inherently for, for the lack of liquidity. That, that, that's when also sometimes the indicators seem to fill me more than average. So those would be two sort of caveats to it. Um, I don't think people can really misuse it because it, it's all in how that they, you know, sort of have a discipline and methodology. And, and I think anything that you apply on a regular basis it, where you have it, some kind of system can be helpful because you, you start to learn where that system is, is failing you. So that can be information in and of itself. But have some kind of system. I don't think there's any real wrong way to do it, but rather to have a methodology, I think is very important. The three key points there then would be that uh, one, you need a market that is reasonably liquid because if, you know, it's hard to do TA on distressed bonds, for instance, it's not kind of going to work because it's all moving in one chunk and big chunks of price action. Um, two, you need a, a market with relatively steady information flow, stuff that has large binary events regularly or even irregularly isn't going to uh, be conducive to the sort of discovering what's going on underneath the surface that TI allows you to do. And then um, finally, the most important thing is to have a rigorous system as opposed to any one particular system being, being better or worse. What matters is you know, adapting that system over time and being disciplined that, you know, you're actually receiving the signals when the system doesn't work as opposed to, you know, just kind of ignoring it and saying, oh, well, my system's so great. That's right. There's a lot of information and signals that are stopped out, I've found. So it can be, you know, directional information or otherwise, but it, it tends to be uh, good to know, certainly. And uh, I would add to the second point you made there that it's also good, um, you know, sort of thought to, to look at things that do work even better than the average security in terms of the charts and the indicators. And I would highlight um, commodities and things that are extremely liquid and very much less prone to these binary events. Of course, now we're at a time when WTI crude oil has had a fairly binary event, but um, not, not the best example at present. Uh, but typically, these markets tend to be very liquid, uh, and, and I call it a more sort of pure supply-demand relationship that is creating the trends there. So I've found that commodities and currencies, things that trade with global liquidity, tend to lend themselves even better than the average stock, for example, uh, to the indicators, to the, the form of analysis, really. 
it's interesting you mentioned WTI because I can remember personally that one being one that there were a lot of times after the big sell-off in 2014 through mid-2015 and then WTI kind of bottomed out um, uh, early uh, in 2016. Um, but but the, the way it traded into and after that, that bottoming, there was a lot of stuff going on with how it was trading relative to its RSI or its MACD or support and resistance levels that you know kind of made a lot of sense if all you were looking at was the chart and not thinking about the macro overlay of oversupply or OPEC or whatever. Um, and FX, I've, I've also definitely noticed as well, you know, G10FX tends to trend really, really hard. Something like the uh, New Zealand dollar or the Aussie dollar or um, the Euro, I mean, there are exceptions, but but there are lots of situations in those kind of asset classes that you just don't see in U.S. stocks that can go 10 or 15% either way around big earnings reports that happen four times a year. That's right. Moving on a little bit, uh, I would love to talk to you about uh, becoming a CMT, what that kind of entails. And you also do a lot of work with the MTA, uh, the Market Technicians Association, uh, which is not only sort of a, a, a group for professional networking and development, but also something of a self-regulatory organization. Is that correct? That's true. So I was on the board of the MTA for several years as vice president and I really owe a lot of my career successes to the organization. Um, you know, first and foremost, it's really that CMT or Chartered Market Technician designation that has helped get me to where I am today, and, and I really am grateful for that. And um, it was so long ago <laughs> that that um, I received that CMT Level One designation back in college, um, but that set me on that path, and and I was able to proceed with CMT Level Two and Three which were quite different than, uh, than they are now. And, uh, but I did receive that, um, the CMT designation in 2001. And at the time I was the youngest female to receive it. And uh, I was very proud of that. And uh, we were able for the level three of that um, to write an original research paper. And uh, that was just you know, really fun for me, really just to, to explore a different um, sort of form of technical analysis that I had not done before. So what was your paper on? It was on incorporating volume into the point and figure charts. I found that as more and more I, I started to use the bar charts, I found that um, volume was helping me a whole lot back then, and far less so now, I should add. <laughs> um, but back then it was quite helpful, and I just felt like if, if you could see the volume and whether it was enhancing or otherwise breakouts and breakdowns on those point and figure charts, that that would be... Um, added information, and uh, we did some back testing and, and discovered that indeed um, it was added value and, and certainly deserved, you know, sort of further research. You had mentioned briefly just there that you find volume less helpful these days. Could you expand a little bit on that? What 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 you think is driving that, and how that plays out in your analysis? Yeah, I mean, when you read the textbooks, at least the ones that have not been updated. <laughs> You know, they, they really call for volume to expand in um, strong trends. And quite frankly, that it just stopped um, being important in my work, at least. I, I found it always quite difficult to identify trends in histograms anyway, which, which is usually how volume is presented. And um, so I, I was not very good at that. But um, besides that, I, I think the volume trends have been going lower overall for U.S. equities, at least since about 2007. And that's in part, you know, due to the market, but it's in 
part also due to the advent of things like ETFs and their popularity and derivatives. And now more recently, we have algorithmic trading and high frequency trading that are also affecting volumes. So you feel like you don't really know exactly what the so-called real volume is. And it's well beyond my pay grade to understand how to, to isolate that real volume. So unless you have a good sense of that, it, it's really quite difficult to incorporate it, I find, in your analysis these days. One of the interesting things you mentioned there is algorithmic trading. One of the thing, one of the phenomena we've seen certainly post crisis, and it may have been evident in a smaller degree prior to the crisis, but certainly post crisis, is that you'll see down days almost always have massive volume relative to up days. And you know, I, I guess the intuition there is that because so much liquidity is being provided by high frequency traders that are trading lots and lots and lots and lots of stock at very small margins instead of um, large blocks of stock at larger volume, volume or larger margins per share. Um, when people go seek that liquidity, that necessarily means that volumes have to tick up because you've got HFTs fighting over the ability to provide those, that small incremental bits of liquidity, you know, jumping in and out of the market. So if volumes up 50%, well, maybe you know 20% of that is an actual volume increase of motivated sellers with the other 30%. And it, these numbers are purely pulled out of the air. There's not any kind of research behind this, but I, again, intuition-wise, um, with the other 30% being you know, people trying fighting to provide them liquidity. Is that sort of the intuition there? Well, it's funny that you say, you know, you only highlighted down moves as, as being, um, you know, sort of associated with that, that volume surge. And that there's a point in that is that, you know, we've primarily, at least in our career, has been in bull markets, right? And um, when you see the market go down, even like it did last week in the technology sector in the U.S., you do find that it, emotions are running high. And it's when those emotions are running high that you tend to get more volume. So, um, and that would go for high frequency, algorithmic, uh, you know, just about anything uh, should tick up when emotions are running high. And that tends to occur when you get a counter trend move. So, you know, you think about counter trend moves and they're typically quite fast and furious and uh, within healthy trends. So. They feel really painful, but in a way that's that's constructive, right? It's it's preventing sentiment from getting overly bullish or overly bearish, uh, depending on which way you're positioned. So those pullbacks uh, or counter trend moves are constructive, and when you do see them associated with heavy volume, usually that you know is more indicative of the counter trend move as opposed to the beginning of something uh, that becomes a major reversal. Very interesting. Sort of everybody is so nervous that nobody can sell enough to actually trigger a big decline. Um, so the, the broader markets, as you mentioned, the technology sector last week uh, ran into some major headwinds. We've seen really a remarkable, I think, and, and remarkably contrarian move higher in the markets following the U.S. election. And not just in the U.S., but globally, we, um, we track ETFs um, performances on a trailing five-day basis every day and you know every day we put up a list of the top 20 and bottom 20 that we track very wide sampling of markets uh italy was the best performing country etf of the last five days as of today uh in the middle of the morning which is just remarkable when you think about sort of the the headline risk from the italian referendum and and so on and so forth and of course we don't want to dig too deep into that specific event, but there's been a lot of contrarian moves in equity markets, I think, um, relative to what the headline would suggest in the past three weeks. Uh, what do you make of that as someone that's sort of studying um, 
hidden messages that aren't necessarily visible in headline price action? Well, I think all of us are remembering the reaction to Brexit, for one, um, and a lot of similarities could be drawn between Brexit and the U.S. election, uh, where it's a balance between expectations and, and then reactions, of course. And, and so it's been really quite interesting to see that. And uh, I think folks these days realize that often the first move off of a low is the biggest and the most profitable move. But it's a little dicey at the same time. So, um, you know, you'll, you'll see people trying to, to game that in a way to try to be there for that that big reaction. And maybe that could explain uh, the Italian ETFs um, as people positioning for what might be a low probability of event. But, you know, they know that if, if indeed it goes in the right way, it'll probably make that first move quite quickly. And they need to be there for it as opposed to chase it after the fact. So. There seems to be some gaming of these things around these major events. What's really been wild is is the sector positioning, as you alluded to, in the U.S. on on the back of the election, where we've seen some massive sector rotations, and that's really mitigated the the impact of the technology sector's underperformance, which really began before last week, uh, but certainly became more pronounced last week, uh, you know, with the FANG stocks, uh, the early sort of downside leaders for the market. As, as being a bit of a drag on it. Um, but now, of course, their corrections are, are at the point where you could call them mature, um, if not on the verge of reversals back up. So uh, I think that, you know, the rotation now that we've seen into energy and industrials, um, you know, media and even retail, some areas that previously were, were quite unloved is something to, you know, sort of position us for further gains for the broader market. Banks, too, are one that really, I mean, if you want to talk about a sector that typically is a great indicator of how the overall economy is doing, um, the, the, the rush into banks since the beginning of November has been staggering. And I say that as someone who, you know, earlier this year, I was looking at when, when banks really got crushed in February around a whole bunch of European concerns, Deutsche Bank, um, you know, the flattening of the yield curve, there's a long line of reasons they were down, but uh, people were thinking that there were hidden oil exposures, derivatives and lending that were going to bring down the whole banking system. I mean, this, these were sort of not contrarian views, but this was stuff that was getting voiced publicly, you know, and, and you carry forward to now just that the way price changes sentiment is, is always so astounding to behold, you know, on these events that you wouldn't necessarily have predicted would have a big impact on price in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the financial rotation started, uh, you know, well before the election and just accelerated thereafter and, and really still has not relented, obviously largely, you know, related to yields and what they've done and, and the speed with which these things have moved is really uh, just amazing. And I call it a time compression. It feels like moves that used to take weeks now take days, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. But the financials certainly have been a source of outperformance and, and haven't downticked like we saw technology do a few weeks ago. So it's just a matter of understanding when the overbought conditions is actually, you know, are, are going to give way to a loss of momentum. And so far, we're not there yet with the banks or otherwise, as difficult as it can be to add exposure to them into such strong up moves. Um, I'd at least 
stay with my existing exposure. So you think that about banks, but also about industrials, energy, materials, some of these other sectors that have been big beneficiaries of the pre-existing but accelerated due to election rotation into some of the less loved sectors? Right. They're, they're largely not that overbought yet. So you're seeing advances from basing phases, and that's when you tend to get more sustained that move. So they don't look too stretched. Obviously, you have to take them on a case-by-case basis when you're looking at individual stocks. But as a whole, for each of the sectors that you mentioned there that have benefited from the election, they do not look too overextended to me at this time. And when you look at those relative rotation graphs that we discussed, where you have that normalized view of the sectors versus the broader market, they tend to look like more emerging leadership as opposed to well-established leadership like the financials. Yeah, and the other thing is it's worth noting, especially something like energy or or the banks, I, I mean, these were sectors that underperformed dramatically, almost historically for, in the case of energy historically, for long periods of time before this fall, right? So it's not like this stuff was expensive relative to the market as a whole or, or you know, doing well relative to the market as a whole as you saw this sort of turbocharge. And, you know, the other thing I, I think interesting in your comments, um, you had noted a couple of times that there, there were rotations underway in the market before we saw the election catalyst hit. So whether it was uh, the yield curve, the level of yields in absolute terms, the 10-year yield or the two-year yield, um, the uh, performance of the US dollar, uh, the performance of banks, uh, there, there were the performance of credit. There were a number of different catalysts that sort of seemed to already be in place in small amounts that sort of exploded um, following the, the vote on uh, in early November. Right. And, and some of it began around Brexit. So there was that that catalyst for it. And some of the, the rotations started, you know, after the summertime breakout, because the S&P 500 broke out from a, a wide range over the summer months. And, and that, to me, is when you started to see sort of a newly offensive, as opposed to defensive, rotation in the marketplace that that has really stayed with it aside now from technology. And and when you think about the sectors that have the largest footprints in the indices, at least here in the U.S., financials are incredibly important and technology, of course, and then consumer discretionary and and healthcare would be up there as well. So just imagine if you start to see healthcare uh, really participate uh, to a greater extent, I think that could be a nice comment on market breadth and, and help sort of keep a floor under the market. So overall, then bottom line for U.S. equity indices, it's it's not not too late to get in, and it's not too early. It is too early to start fading the move in in your view and looking at, at the markets the way you do. I think so, and I'm I'm okay living through corrections too. I don't think a correction is imminent. I, I think you know the market seems set up for follow through in part due to, to the positive seasonal influences that you all at the spoke are so good about highlighting. Um, but, you know, January, February certainly could see a correction. Do you want to wait for that to add exposure? In some cases, probably yes. In other cases, no. So it really just depends on what security you're looking at. Uh, but I think it's right to have exposure, have overweight exposure to the more offensive sectors of the market. Uh, the market is in an uptrend. And, and I think that would be something that be hard for a lot of people to argue. It does tend to climb that wall of worry, and, and that's okay. Um, you know, just this morning, in fact, was the first morning where I felt like we got this reading and sentiment that was a little bit worrisome. Where you know we had this 
so-called overly bullish reading in one of our sentiment gauges. But not until that has an impact on momentum would I reposition because of it. Got it. So I think it would be really nice to change the uh, subject a little bit here and, and talk about how you approach your balance of your career and your family. I, I believe you have two young children. I actually have three now. <laughs> oh, congratulations. <laughs> Sorry. My, clearly my information a little bit out of date. Um, so how do you think about that? I'm, I'm someone who, you know, I, I, I don't have kids. I don't, I'm not married. So my work is very easy to prioritize, you know, spending 12 hours a day in a seat is not something that really bothers me. But for someone with a family at home, that must be very different. So how do you sort of think about that? Well, I, I hope that, you know, by being a working mom that I'm setting a good example for my kids. And, um, you know, I try to remember that when it does get really hard, because it does. And in my role, there is some travel as well. And, and that can be quite taxing. You know, it, it's tiring just in and of itself, but also you know, you get home and you want to give your, your kids, you know, more than 100%. And that's very difficult to do at times if you've been on the road. So it is certainly a balance. And, and I can't say that I, I strike it perfectly. But um, for one, I have a lot of help and, and uh, we're blessed to have that. And, you know, I, I realize that that's something not everybody has access to. But we have a lot of help in, you know, an au pair and a an, an nanny. And um, they're wonderful and we're in touch constantly. So it's it's about staying involved and making sure that your kids know that you're there, even if you're not physically there and uh, just communicating as best you can. And, and also, you know, um, my firm has been generous enough to let me spend a lot of my working hours working from home. And um, you do get to that point in your career where you really need to prioritize. And, and certainly my family is my priority. So that way I can be there, you know, at, one just as a presence, um, if not the person that's making them the grilled cheeses, <laughs> but uh, but someone that they can come and, and you know um, ask me a question or sit on my lap while I'm typing away. So uh, just trying to strike that balance. And now, as I realize that you know they're getting a bit older and they're in school, really a good portion of the day and in, in, in activities. So I do find that they're as busy as I am some days, and and we all kind of come back home and, and regroup and have a lot to talk about. That's awesome. The, the work from home thing is huge. I, I actually live in North Carolina now. I, I was in New York until this summer. I moved down here. Um, and the ability to work from home makes a fantastic difference in your in your capability to balance stuff like um, like having children. For me, it's a dog as opposed to a kid, which is you know much easier to balance. He's not quite as demanding as an actual little human would be, but um, that that change just seems to be one that's making more and more sense for a lot of firms. I mean, I've I've noticed in my social circle a lot more people working from home or working remotely or trying to do these sorts of things to balance the twin demands of their personal lives and their professional lives. Is, is that something you've noticed as well, not just with BTIG, but also um, throughout the industry that there's there's more willingness and ability to, to make those trade-offs on the part of employers? Well, I think, you know, there used to be a reluctancy even for anyone working from home because in a way it becomes more of a 24-7 type of job by doing that. And, uh, you know, it makes it more difficult to turn it off or shut it down. But quite honestly, these days we can't shut it down anyway. You know, if we're we're checking our phones, you know, up to 40 times a day on average, <laughs> depending on your age, um, guess what? You know, it's 24/7 anyway. So I think it's it's really just sort of the new reality, and and I think it's 
it's probably good for some reasons, not as good for others. Um, but it's really just what works for you and, and your, you know, the people that you work for and work with and, and also your family. And it's just a matter of, of striking that balance, which I'm sure none of us feel like we have, have that balance exactly worked out. Um, but we do the best we can as parents and, and as coworkers and <laughs> we just plow through it. Yeah. And I think, I think m- many of us, I'm sure yourself and myself included, have it, the support of coworkers and the sort of, you know, having a good, strong team around you that understands not just on this issue, but in general, makes just the biggest difference in the world, you know, having people that are understanding and, and compassionate, or at least just, you know, polite, <laughs> um, is really what makes the biggest difference. Um, so w- with regards to the finance industry in general, how, how do you feel about the industry right now? We've come through sort of an interesting phase here with the um, development of Dodd-Frank and the end of a lot of proprietary trading um, The from the uh, buy side's perspective, just really struggling to generate high returns, let alone high risk adjusted returns um, in an era when macro has sort of been king and and quantitative easing and, you know, slow grinding recovery in terms of the economy as a whole and, you know, lots of political events going on. You know, this hasn't really been a great um, period for the industry over the past decade post-crisis. Um, so how, how do you feel about the industry now and, and sort of how would you describe it or, you know, uh, couch it to a young person interested in getting into finance? Well, I think anyone who's interested in it should certainly get into it because there's there's a place for, for everyone in a way. There's Finance isn't limited to what I do, certainly, or, or being a trader at a buy-side firm. Uh, there's so much more to it. And um, I really just think the pendulum swings too far, and it's, it's also cyclical. So I would argue that that what we've seen, you know, the contraction in um, business or in finance in general, largely, you know, regulatory-driven, um, I, I think it just it's gone too far, and that, you know, ultimately it should see some relief and, and kind of swing back. And as it does that, you know, we'll see different lines of businesses outperform and other ones underperform. And uh, so it's a matter of trying to find, you know, your place um, in an area within finance that is outperforming. Uh, that's how you can be the most successful. Um, and that is always changing and evolving. You know, um, somebody who's a freshman in college it might be different for them than it was for, you know, the most recent graduating class. So. Uh, these cycles, you know, occur over over time, and um, you know, it's it's hard to judge it when you're establishing your major early on in college. Certainly, to say, oh well, you know, I, I wish I'd had the foresight to go into private equity, which has been really growing and expanding, that type of thing. So there there is some you know market forces involved there that that really are not something that you can control. But if you have any passion for it. Um, I would argue that it, it's really one of the most dynamic careers um, that one can have because the market changes um, all around us and, and it's all about adapting and keeping up. So you're constantly learning and constantly, um, you know, trying to understand the world. And, and uh, certainly, um, you know, it all is it's very global in nature. So, um, you know, as, as everything has become more macro and, and intertwined, if you will, uh, we've all had to become, you know, more versed in different subjects, and I, I just think it's fascinating. So it's one of the great things about this job is that if you actually love what you're doing in finance, you're almost never bored, right? There's always something new to learn about any aspect of the market that you don't have mastery of yet, and you'll never have mastery of them all. So I think I think nobody gets bored if they're if they're trying to learn um, as much as they possibly can at all times. 
Right. And it's sort of like parenting. They say the days are long, but the years are short. And uh, I would argue that when you, you start your career, it feels somewhat the same way uh, where, you know, you might be doing some data entry and you gosh say, well, this is really boring. <laughs> uh, but quite frankly, it, it's a means to an end where, where finally you find yourself a few years later saying, well, gosh, I, I actually needed to get that experience to get to where I am now. And, and now I'm doing exactly what I, I really you know, studied to do and really enjoy doing the most. So I would encourage people not to get discouraged early in their careers with, with the more mundane parts of it, uh, but rather to see sort of, um, you know, the end goal of it all to, to, you know, then add value in their own way. So with the changing regulatory environment and changing dynamic of the industry as a whole, is, is there anything that BTIG is doing um, as a firm to sort of reorient how customers are approached or how um, you provide the insights you do to clients? Is, or is it sort of um, less a, a, a easy to see headline change and more just little things day to day that naturally sort of work themselves out? And, you know, it's funny breaking that up. I've been reading a lot about how some of the sell side um, firms or broker dealers are adapting to the changing uh, needs of, of their clients. And certainly BTIG is at the forefront of that. And uh, we have mandates that are, are, you know, to basically, you know, add value in, in whatever way that we can. And, and that means sometimes not being uh, traditional in the way that we approach the market. So certainly, that that's something that they try to foster here where, where we're not publishing research that you can find anywhere else and, and really adding value in our own ways with uh, based on our experience, which ranges from industry experience, of course, to, uh, you know, academic experience. And, and uh, certainly APTIG is at the forefront of that. And um, yeah, the research departments and their composition has, has changed and probably will change even more going forward especially in Europe and, and with Heather, you know, they're changing their regulations there. Uh, so it's all about adapting to that and, and trying to be, you know, at times one step ahead of it. Awesome. Well, I think we have one more segment here before we'll let you go. We really appreciate you being on and giving us a big slug of your time like this. Um, so this next segment is called Trading Rich or Trading Cheap. It's um, basically just a reaction segment. So I'm going to um, say Trading Rich or Trading Cheap, and then you're going to give us your thoughts on something. Um, so I think given the um, number of different um, political risk events that we've had in the past month, um, let alone Brexit earlier this year, and, and any number of different referenda and elections over the past couple of years. Um, would you say trading rich or trading cheap elections? <laughs> oh, gosh. I guess my first reaction would be trading rich um, because of the reactions that we have seen. Uh, but indeed, when you translate that to the stock market, I would say it's not trading rich. So maybe more from um, a sentiment perspective, it's a bit rich, um, but really from um, more of a market perspective, not so much. Uh, so that would be my, my knee-jerk reaction. And, and the knee-jerk reaction is, is very typical after these elections. So it's, it's just been, from my seat, very interesting to watch. Uh, when I was um, actually traveling abroad during the US election and had the unfortunate uh, position of, of waking up to the futures being down something like 110 points for the S&P 500. And, and boy, if that wasn't a knee-jerk reaction, I don't know what is. So it, it's just been fascinating. Trading rich or trading cheap, uh, U.S. pop culture. 
gosh, I would say trading cheap. There's so much upside there um, in terms of how social media media has uh, really changed the landscape. And, and uh, you know, now we have the distribution channel and now what can we do with it? Um, and I think there's a ton of upside and that some of the bigger firms are, are really embracing it, but maybe we haven't quite seen that carryover trickle down to the smaller firms and, and we'll see more and more of that. I mean, we're all seeing it every day on our, our smartphones. So I think there's a lot of upside there. Okay, trading rich or trading cheap, meeting in person. And I say that because we're of course conducting this uh, interview uh, remotely. I do most of my work remotely. You work from home regularly. So um, there are benefits to that, um, but does that sort of cheapen the, uh, the, the benefit of meeting someone face-to-face -face in a room and having a conversation with them? Never. <laughs> um, you, you really can't replace the value of a face-to-face -face conversation. In fact, I think you just need to have that one uh, you know, point of contact with someone. And then from there, you can uh, you know, use, use the electronic dialogue and, and that's okay. But that one touch point, I think, is really invaluable, especially for me and as I interact with clients, just to have the face and the mannerisms to, to associate with the names and the emails and the IM addresses, um, there's really no replacement for that. And I, I value that you know, very much in what I do. Okay, last one here, and I, I, I'm interested to hear your answer on this one because you do spend a bit more time at home than, than maybe uh, many of our listeners working from home regularly. I certainly do. Uh, trading rich or trading cheap, eating at home? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> you're probably not asking the right person and on that one, I, you know, I actually really enjoy eating at home, but I don't enjoy cooking all that much. So, <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I'm in an unusual position in that regard as much as I love, uh, you know, being with my kids and sitting down for a meal with them. Um, I also find that to go out, you know, uh, for dinner or what have you, and to still have that nice quality, you know, one-on-one -on -one time with them and not to have the cleanup, uh, well, there's certainly value to that as well. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Kitty, thank you so much for uh, being here with us today and having this awesome conversation. Um, Kitty is the uh, Chief Technical Strategist for BTIG in New York City, and she was kind enough to join us here today on BespokeCast. Thanks very much, Kitty. We really appreciate it. Thank you, George. week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, data sets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information.
Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.